Hello and welcome to the podcast of tech.eu. I am your host, Andrew Daylor, and today we are going to discuss some of the biggest funding rounds of the week, some new VC funds, science and research news, and much more. Later on, I will also play you an interview with Sebastian Peck of InMotion Ventures covering the topics of micromobility, corporate accelerators, and corporate venture capital. But first, the news. Let us start with some funding stories, and there has been a lot of those this week. First up, more money for shared electric scooters. Voi, uh, the Swedish contender in this space, has raised 160 million US dollars in a round led by the Rain Group. The round is about two-thirds equity and one-third debt, according to a report by TechCrunch. And here is a quote uh, by the founder and CEO of Voi, Frederik Hjelm. I think going forward, we will increase the debt ratio to equity, he said. What you want to avoid, of course, as a startup is dilution. We want as much debt as possible because we want cash to grow because we think we can have good ROI in capital. But the debt market is usually closed for startups until they get to a very proven business model. The quote ends. So the point here is that Voy wants to borrow money to purchase more e-scooters, rather than attracting that money in exchange for equity. So Helm hopes to be able to prove that his unit economics is working within the next six to nine months and then increase the debt facility. If that works, this could well be the last equity financing round for the company. The news comes less than a month after another e-scooter company, Tier, raised 250 million US dollars. A week after that, another European contender, Bolt, said that it would invest 100 million euros in its e-scooter business in 2021. So the stakes are certainly getting higher and higher. And while we are on the topic of e-scooters, Bolt has also just unveiled the fourth generation of its e-scooter designed by the company's own hardware team. The new vehicle is mostly made of aluminum and it weighs 19 kilos, so much more than, for example, an average bicycle. The scooter has modular design, uh, thanks to which, according to Bolt, it can last up to 60 months on the streets, because if something breaks, that part can be replaced without the need to replace the whole thing. The new scooter also has several sensors that can recognize accidents and unsafe riding patterns and alert both Bolt and the rider themselves. So basically, if you are riding too fast uh, in a pedestrian-only area, then uh, the scooter will supposedly show you some notifications on the built-in display or maybe even play some audio. In other funding news, UK-based Hungry Panda, which provides a specialist online ordering platform for Chinese customers living abroad in cities around the globe, has raised 70 million US dollars in funding. The company was launched in 2017 by Eric Liu, a computer science graduate at the University of Nottingham who wanted to fix a problem he experienced firsthand, getting hold of authentic Chinese food on demand away from home. Currently, Hungry Panda has a 500-person strong team operating in six countries across the world serving 47 cities. With the fresh cash, the company plans to double the size of its team to 1,000. Next up, another UK-based company, the neobank Monzo, has landed £60 million in funding. This appears to be an extension of another £60 million capital injection that happened in June this year, which was also a down round. The company's valuation took a 40% hit, and this last round values it at £1.2 billion. According to a report by TechCrunch, Monzo is approaching 5 million customers overall, of which more than 60,000 are business users. 
that is up from 25,000 signups in June. More than 100,000 customers are using the paid-for current accounts Monzo Plus and Monzo Premium. And one more funding round for a UK-based company. Mel Science has landed 14 million US dollars from a range of investors from Europe and China. Back in May, we had Mel Science's head of partnerships at Stockwell on the podcast, so I will let him do the pitch for the startup. Now with Mel Science, we specialize in science education kits for home use and homeschoolers, uh, as well as for schools, supported by virtual reality and augmented reality apps to sort of bring the science to life. You know, most of science happens at a microscopically small level. So digital technologies and simulations are particularly helpful to help visualize that for kids. And hands-on science is obviously what we all remember from our school days as the coolest bits. So that's where we focus. I would really recommend you to listen to that whole episode. If you did not, uh, we had a great time talking about education technology with Ed himself and Michal from uh, Brainly.com. And I will leave a link in the show notes. So Mel Science, it seems to have been growing very fast this year, which isn't that surprising, really. As the co-founder and CEO, Vasily Filipov, puts it, the company now, I quote, provides a way to help parents fill the role of teachers during periods of classroom closures and continually fuel their kids' curiosity for and interest in subjects that are often difficult to grasp, the quote ends. Now, let us move from the UK to Sweden. Uh, SoftBank Group has just acquired 10.1% of the cloud communication provider Cinch. I interviewed the CEO of Cinch, Oscar Werner, uh, back in July. So once again, I will let him do the talking. Sure, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, Cinch uh, provides, we're a cloud communications company. So we provide enterprises that want to communicate with their consumers via voice services, uh, video, uh, video services, or messaging services. So take an example. You have an app, say a ride-hailing company, um, that wants to have a call from an app to phones. We would do that. Uh, you have, you're, a, you're, a, you know, you're an uh, online doctor who wants to do the video link uh, in order to communicate with your patients. Or say you're an airline that wants to do messaging or you know, deliver, you know, deliver notifications that your uh, flight is canceled or tickets via messaging can be, can be WhatsApp, can be RCS, can be WeChat, uh, or can be text messaging uh, to your consumers then we provide cloud-based services to provide those services. The deal with SoftBank consists of two parts. The company itself issued about 3 million new shares and sold it to SoftBank, which raised some 320 million euros. At the same time, Cinch co-founders sold another 5.2 million shares, which brings the total amount of the deal to about 567 million euros. Now, let us spend another few minutes also talking about money, but now from the other side of the barricades. VC firm Target Global, headquartered in Berlin, has announced first close of its new fund of 300 million euros. And the new fund, which is one of the five currently active funds of the firm, will target fintech, SaaS, and wellness startups with tickets from 10 to 20 million euros. As for the geographic distribution, Target normally invests 70% of its funds in Europe, another 20% in Israel, and 10% in uh, quote-unquote opportunistic investments. That's what Jaron Waller, uh, the general partner at Target, told Sifted. With this fund, the distribution is expected to be the same. 
Now, another new fund of 87 million pounds this time has been closed by First Minute Capital, a VC firm headquartered in London with offices in Stockholm and Berlin, and it also plans to open an office in Los Angeles in 2021. So it is the second early stage fund of the firm, which has been around since 2016. The money will be invested in seed stage startups in Europe and in the US. The anchor investor of this fund is RIT Capital Partners, and further LPs notably include 70 founders of billion-dollar businesses, such as Palantir, Wayfair, Okado, MongoDB, Zalando, and Supercell. First Minute is actually very open about its LPs, and you can find a full list in the report of TechCrunch, which I will link to in the show notes. Also, here is the latest from the European Investment Bank Group. At the virtual Web Summit conference, the group announced a new co-investment facility of up to 150 million euros. Per the statement, the money will be invested, I quote, alongside funds backed by the European Investment Fund in companies that are active in the artificial intelligence sector and in technologies that directly complement AI, such as blockchain, the Internet of Things, and robotics. The quote ends. The new funds will be available in all EU member states and also in 16 Horizon 2020 associated countries. The money is expected to be deployed during the next four years. Next up, a news story from the scientific department this time. DeepMind, a UK-born AI startup that's currently owned by Google, announced this week that it has effectively solved the problem of protein folding. However, not everyone seems that convinced. So if you're like me, then you probably also heard about the protein folding problem but never really dug into it. So here's a quick primer, free quoting from the New York Times report. So proteins are the microscopic mechanisms that drive the behavior of viruses, bacteria, the human body, and all living things. They begin as strings of chemical compounds before twisting and folding into three-dimensional shapes that define what they can actually do and also what they cannot do. And for biologists, identifying the precise shape of a protein often requires months, years, or even decades of experimentation. It requires skill, intelligence, and more than a little elbow grease. Sometimes they never succeed. Back in 1994, a group of scientists created a global competition that's called the Critical Assessment of Structure Prediction, or CASP. It happens every two years, and that's where researchers compare the effectiveness of their efforts to figure out the protein folding. This year, DeepMind came along with its AI-based solution that's called AlphaFold, and apparently this one blew everyone else out of the water. And shortly after, DeepMind itself and the scientists who are overseeing the CASP competition declared that the startup has solved protein folding. Then, however, a whole bunch of scientists went on to voice their skepticism. The long and short of this is that, in their opinion, DeepMind's solution so far has only been successful within the CASP dataset, and it does not necessarily mean that it will work as great in the real world. It also suggested that it would be a great idea that DeepMind makes the code of AlphaFold public so that the scientific community could evaluate it. Anyway, even the skeptics agree that AlphaFold is a very big step forward in figuring out the protein folding. So after all, it's just the question of whether it's just good news or amazing breaking news that everyone should know about. Now let's move on to today's featured interview. Recently, our editor Robin Wouter sat down with Sebastian Peck, the managing director of InMotion Ventures, which is a firm backed by Jaguar Land Rover. Let's listen to their conversation together. 
Hey, this is Robin Wouters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here today by Sebastian Peck, who is the Managing Director of InMotion Ventures, which is the venture capital fund from Jaguar Land Rover, if I got that correctly. Sebastian, thank you for joining, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong with the introduction. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for, for having me on this podcast. Uh, InMotion Ventures is Jaguar Land Rover's venture capital arm. We invest in uh, all things mobility. Uh, typically, we, we sort of... Uh, summarize it as, you know, ACES, autonomous mobility, connectivity, um, electrification, and shared mobility. Um, but we also look at adjacent uh, parts of the value chain. So things like financial services, uh, insurance, and of course, uh, the future of retail, which is uh, hugely important to us. And uh, we see a lot of changes happening there due to COVID. Yeah, that's quite a broad spectrum. But just maybe to take you back to the, the history of the, the fund, when was it started? And, and maybe even more importantly, why? Yeah. So in 2016, uh, Jagger Land Rover, like many other OEMs, um, were confronted with uh, the question, what do we do about mobility? And Jagger Land Rover is a relatively small manufacturer in the scheme of things. So we produce about 600,000 cars per year compared to someone like Volkswagen, for example, who uh, sell about you know 11 million cars per year. So we are relatively small. We are focused very much on the premium segment. Uh, and so for us, the, the answer, what mobility means for Jaguar Land Rover wasn't actually that straightforward. Um, we knew from the beginning it wasn't really about, you know, making a mass market play. So the question was, what does premium mobility actually mean? And uh, how can we give it our very own peculiar twist? Um, so that was the starting point. And um, in, I joined in 2016 when there were, was a group of people working on a number of different ideas and concepts. And when I came in, I, I split the business really into two parts. And the two pillars today are effectively the incubator, where we develop our proprietary mobility services. We've launched businesses like the Out, a premium on-demand rental service, uh, Pivotal, a subscription service, Haven, um, an electric uh, chauffeur service. And, um, and then we have the early stage venture capital arm, which is making early stage investments in seed for Series A companies, typically, we've made about 17 investments over the last three and a half years. Um, currently, we've got 14 companies in our portfolio. We've had three exits. And we are one of the most active corporate-backed uh, investors, especially in Europe, in the mobility space. Great. Well, you say corporate-backed investor. Does that mean that you don't invest uh, off the balance sheet, that you have like a properly structured fund uh, with uh, Jaguar Land Rover as the sole LP? Or, or do I understand that? Correctly. Yeah, so, so Jaguar Land Rover effectively, um, uh, provides us with the funds. We have a, a separate investment vehicle, uh, which is a, is a UK based, uh, limited company. Um, so we are operating a little bit more, um, independent, uh, from the core, uh, core business. And that's quite important for us to sort of maintain a degree of agility to be able to, um, make decisions not only quicker, but, but also take, uh, here and there a bit of a contrarian sense and to make sure that we operate at a pace. Um, that allows us to um, to look a little bit further into the future at times uh, and to take a little bit more risk uh, as well than, than would be the case in the core business. Yeah. So when we talk about the future of mobility, of course, that is an incredibly broad uh, spectrum of things. Uh, it's a multimodal travel, it's shared mobility services, it's uh, autonomous driving uh, and, and flying cars and whatnot. So it is incredibly broad. But when I say the future of mobility, to you, what, what, what is the, the one thing you immediately think of? Mm -hmm. So we, we think about it um, really as the, the movement of people, not necessarily goods. So uh, the transport and logistics uh, piece of mobility 
um, has been something that we traditionally haven't focused on. So we think about it as the movement of people. And within that, we think about specific demographics. Um, so the, the kind of premium customer um, we attract today, what is that customer going to do tomorrow? Right. So we know that there are a lot of affluent people living in cities. Um, and not all of them, um, are natural car buyers these days. And I think that's, that's, that's for us sort of, you know, one of the main problems, um, uh, we are trying to solve. How does a company like Jagger Land Rover continue to, um, uh, you know, excite its customer base, um, which traditionally has been quite affluent, um, and, has been either sort of, you know, based in, in the country or in the city. And how do we continue to appeal to those affluent customers? Um, what do we need to do about our product portfolio? Do we need to be more present in mobility services? Um, what do we need to do in order to really go beyond just manufacturing, delivering a car to a dealer? How can we create a lasting relationship through digital services um, with our customer base. Those are sort of the classic, the classic questions we are trying to, to answer. So, so within mobility, you're absolutely right. We, we are quite focused on a particular segment um, and we're really focused on the movement of people as opposed to goods. Great. So let's talk about movement of people because um, the way that we move from A to B uh, is changing. It was already changing, of course, uh, but it's changed quite dramatically, of course, this year because of the COVID crisis. Um, so how do you see the future of, of people moving uh, within cities, but also to cities? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I think within cities, you know, we, we continue to see quite significant uh, changes. I, I, I don't think anyone uh, in the car industry is under the illusion that, you know, you can drive your car anywhere at any time. You know, in cities like London, um, you have the congestion charge, you have uh, a whole number of regulatory uh, measures that have been taken in order to effectively create um, an environment that that isn't necessarily friendly to to the motorist, um, and, and we acknowledge that. Um, I also think, personally, living in London, I, I don't think you have to take the car uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, the, the 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 big challenge for cities is how do you find the appropriate mix between the modalities? You know, what. Uh, what role has public transit to play? What role has micromobility to play? What role has the car to play? Um, you know, driving into central London with a car, um, is, you know, very often not a good idea. Um, we've got a fantastic underground system. Um, when I go to the office, for example, in King's Cross, I travel by tube even now, you know, and I feel perfectly safe doing so. So the, the infrastructure we have and the choices we have, uh, is really what, um, this new world of mobility is about. And, the proliferation of choices we've seen over the past few years, you know, starting with ride hailing, uh, micromobility, um, and I'm sure there are many, many other things to come. Um, this is where we kind of try and find our footing. And then we have to sort of, you know, figure out, okay, you know, for the kind of customers we want to appeal to, what are the choices that we, you know, that, that they have? Uh, what role does the car play as part of those choices they are making? And where else do we need to have a footprint? Yeah. And within that um, micromobility that, that you mentioned, um, we have things like e-scooters, e-bikes uh, surging, of course, uh, quite quite rapidly. Ride-hailing is still a thing. Um, how has it changed because of COVID, though? And how how will the the changes that we see now become permanent, if they will? I don't know, but maybe that's a question to you. So, so I think huh? I think the challenge the challenge that COVID um, is presenting to to public transit is that people don't like to travel in the moment in confined spaces that are 
um, that they share with other people. I think that 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 really is a challenge for many many people. You know, um, obviously you have social distancing um, guidelines in place, um, but there's also a psychological um, issue. Um, in a sense, that really has meant that the car um, has has you know had a good time uh, during the crisis. Um, and you see this in terms of you know the the amount of uh, uh, traffic that is out there on the streets. The problem is it also has highlighted some of the challenges um, uh, and the fact that the infrastructure um, that we currently have is simply not built for a society that you know just travels around in cars. So you need you need other modalities. You know it's really really important um, that depending on the kind of trip you do, you have appropriate choices. Um, if you're traveling short distances, you know distances that might be too long to walk, but um, uh, also too short to, to really, you know, necessitate jumping into a car. I think that really is where, where micro mobility has a, has a massive role to play. Um, and when we talk about micro mobility, um, typically people refer to it as, as a, as shared services, you know, scooters, e-bikes and so on. Um, but I also think there's a personal dimension to it. Um, you know, we, we very much like, um, e-bikes, um, uh, and we think, you know, there are interesting businesses out there, which, um, try and effectively uh, find ways to to ease you as an individual into um, using these assets, not necessarily owning them, but also not necessarily sharing them. Um, so dance is a is a very good example, and I think I think those types of businesses, which are a little bit more premium, which don't necessarily or which give you which give you that availability and choice when you need it, um, that's something we find very very interesting. Great. Um, you mentioned that within InMotion Ventures, you basically split it into the venture capital arm and the incubator, which is where you incubate new businesses yourself. Does does that not risk um, creating any conflicts down the line where you basically put something into the market that you might want to invest in in a rival later on? Sure. Um, so we, we we are very, very disciplined. Um, and, and those two models, in a way, complement each other rather than colliding uh, with each other. Um, the Incubation activity is very, very narrow. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't sort of have any ambitions to, you know, create the next Uber or sort of try and reinvent the wheel. Um, the incubation uh, arm is really about um, effectively taking proven business models or business models where we think we've got a good handle and, and think they can work that are very, very close to the core business. So Pivotal is a good example. Pivotal is a subscription service. Um, it's effectively an extension of uh, the way uh, cars are being sold. And uh, what it does is it really bundles a, a, a range of services, insurance, service maintenance, and so on, um, into a, a package um, and combines it with a very, very flexible arrangement that allows you know someone who subscribes to, subscribes to the service um, to change the car um, uh, rapidly or um, effectively terminate uh, the contract rapidly if if their circumstances uh, force them to do so. So um, what we're really doing is we are sort of you know I guess extending the spectrum of um, how you can consume our product. Now the venture capital arm on the other hand side that's really about um, planting the flex in areas where you know the core business traditionally has no expertise, um, has no capability to really build its own you know businesses um, and um, in that sense, you know, the two activities complement each other. We are using venture capital uh, as a way to really um, build relationships with uh, entrepreneurs who are doing terrific, new, innovative things. 
Uh, and those things originate on the outside of the company. You know, they are, they are things that we simply wouldn't be able to do or wouldn't want to do inside. And I think, I think building that relationship and, and allowing those companies to, to find a way into the market by working with us, that's sort of the role we have to play on the venture capital side. Great. And you quite correctly mentioned that you don't necessarily focus only on, on pure automotive tech, I would say. I was going over the, your portfolio and it uh, also includes things like Fest Ticket, which yeah. is a festival um, ticket booking platform. Uh, so how, how does that work? Like how far away uh, removed does it need to be from pure automotive tech for you to be interested in? Yeah, no. So there, there's a logic to this because, uh, you know, early on, we, we, we said um, premium mobility is not just about uh, a commoditized way to move people from A to B. It's really about the destination as well. It's about the experience. It's about the comfort. It's about what people do once they've arrived. And and so for us, um, having a foothold in the experience economy, um, whether that's the travel industry, whether that's the festival industry, giving people a reason to go somewhere and, you know, mobility facilitating that um, is, is a really important part of that equation. And what Fest Ticket does is not only sell uh, festival tickets, but they also um, effectively sell you the whole package um, around attending a festival, whether it's accommodation, whether it's uh, transport, um, and, and a number of other things. And I think, I think you know, that sort of idea of mobility as part of a uh, experience that you're seeking is what, uh, what drove us to make those investments. Yeah, makes sense. Um, how do you get deal flow these days? Or, or, or let's put it differently. How did you get deal flow before uh, the coronavirus crisis? And, and how has it changed since then? Yeah, so, so um, we, we've managed to establish a really strong brand um, in the market um, over the past four years. And uh, we, we look at about 1,500 to 2,000 companies each year. So, so there's a lot of inbound um, uh, deal flow we get. Um, we've got an extensive network. Um, in the investor and entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial community. Um, clearly conferences used to, you know, play an important part to, to get to know new people, to build relationships, um, to, to exchange views on, on companies that are, that are emerging, uh, with other investors. Uh, and a lot of that has, has now, you know, gravitated online. Um, my, my take on it is, um, uh, you know, where we've had prior relationships, um, continuing to, to build those relationships online. Um, hasn't been particularly difficult. I think what's a little bit more difficult, especially if you're an early stage investor like we are, is to, um, build new relationships where, you know, that personal interaction still is really, really important. Um, um, because very often if you're investing at seed, you're investing in the team, right? You're not investing in a, in a business, uh, necessarily. Um, and so, um, for us, that, that is something that we hope will, um, We'll return to uh, very soon that we are able to to meet people in person again, uh, build those relationships, and and you know get get really personal with with founders. We 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 intend to back. Yeah, fingers crossed that we can go back to that uh, soon. Uh, maybe a question on, on corporate venture capital uh, in general, uh, because I, I saw a statistic somewhere that in the U.S. Uh, corporate venture capital is already surpassed uh, the the amount of venture capital that flows into companies uh, compared to typical institutional investors. I think it's it's about 51%, so just over half. Um, do you think we'll see the same trend in Europe? And is that a good thing? So so I think um, globally, the, the number is about a third um, of uh, deals are, are uh, you know involving uh, corporate-backed investors. And I think generally, yes, um, that is a trend that will continue. I think venture capital has a really important uh, role to play. 
Um, the, the, the challenge I see with corporate venture capital is uh, it's uh, heterogeneity. So there are many, many different approaches people are taking. Um, and if you are a entrepreneur, it's uh, very often very, very difficult to understand um, what someone's um, uh, philosophy or strategy uh, looks like. So I think, um, you know, uh, whereas if you if you look at a traditional financial investor, you know, a VC, very often everyone is trying to differentiate themselves. But at the end of the day, it's it's a fairly standardized product. Corporate venture capital isn't a standardized product. Um, you sort of see two general philosophies typically play out. The first one is where the investment is contingent on some form of collaboration. Uh, and this is typically um, practiced by by um, CBCs who invest at the later stage when the company is a little bit more mature. Um, and it has its pros and cons. Uh, I think the biggest draw, drawback of this approach is that it can take very, very long for an investment decision to materialize. Um, the second philosophy, which is the one we subscribe to, is where you um, uh, look at the investment decision independently um, from whether or not you're going to collaborate with the company at the point at which you invest so you don't make it uh, contingent. Um, and we find this approach really works for us. It really works very well for early stage companies because it gives you the, the room to, to help the company grow and help the company mature and to choose the timing when you, when you effectively make that connection with, with Jago Land Rover in our case. Um, so you have more flexibility. You can, um, act faster. Um, but, you know, given that there are these sort of two different philosophies out there, there are also many, many different approaches in between. Sometimes, you know, you don't have a, a former venture arm, you have uh, people who make these types of investments out of corporate M&A uh, departments. Otherwise, you have a really independently acting vehicle, um, you know, that, that sort of operates on a GPLP basis. And so um, it's, it's my, my tip is always to founders, you know, do your due diligence, spend time understanding how people uh, are operating, how they're incentivized, um, you know, understand their motives. Um, uh, and in some cases, you know, CVCs can be great partners. In other cases, you might want to be a little bit more cautious. Great. Maybe a final question on that. Uh, how is your? How would you describe the relationship with with traditional VC investors? Because of course, publicly everything is always uh, rosy. You make co investments uh, with each other, uh, but you can tell from conversations within the industry that there is some some conflict sometimes uh, between between corporates investing in, in early stage companies and, and the typical uh, VCs. Have you noticed any of that in, in Europe or within uh, the mobility space uh, for, for that matter? So, so we, 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 you know, part of our investment philosophy is that we, we never lead rounds and we always look for a financial lead uh, investor because we, we believe that what we bring to the table complements what, what traditional VCs uh, bring to the table. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we've got really, really good relationships with um, a, a number of funds that we've, we've, we've been co-investing uh, with. I think it comes back to what I, what I said before, you know, corporate venture capital isn't a standardized product. And the behaviors you see can range from people really professional who understand what they're doing, very often might even have a traditional VC background, um, and, and therefore understand, you know, how to, how to, um, be a good co-investor. And then sometimes you see behavior that, that isn't that great. Um, and, and I think the, the, the CBC community is working very, very hard to, to ensure that, you know, they become good co-investors and, and they standardize the way they operate. 
um, in, in, in better ways. And I think, you know, you see, you see, um, uh, a lot of people trying to push in that direction to make sure that, you know, we as a, as an investor class become more predictable, um, and better understood. Great. Sebastian, thank you so much for uh, sharing some of the insights on the mobility landscape, uh, corporate venture capital, but also sharing a bit more about in-motion ventures. Uh, looking forward to, to the future investments you make. And uh, yeah, have a nice uh, rest of the year, I would say. Thank you very much indeed. All the best. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I very much hope that you have enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word about the show. Tell a friend or colleague about us and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will talk to you again next week. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend and take care. Bye-bye.